Please remain standing as you're able. This is the 23rd chapter of Joshua. We followed Joshua and the people from Egypt through the wilderness, and now they've gone into the promised land, and we see that they have conquered that land as we hear this. After a long time had passed, the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, and Joshua by then was a very old man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. One of the things that moved Joshua and the people from Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land was indeed a promise. I would invite your attention to the video screens as Tom Jaco talks about a story that uh, describes the power of promises made. Several years ago, uh, I was assigned in Washington, and one of my little additional duties was to sit on the board of what's called uh, the uh, Soldiers and Airmen's Home, which is located on the high ground in Washington, D.C., about 200 acres, established in 1839 by General Winfield Scott as a place for old soldiers to go when they have no place else to go. And actually, it's a nursing home, uh, both assisted living and, and, and skilled nursing. When I was out there on one of my visits, I met this old gentleman. They said he was at least 100 years old, maybe older. And, and, and I really took a liking to him, and I, and I felt called to, to visit him more often than I really needed to go out there. So a couple times a month, I would go out, and I would visit him, and it was always the same routine. I would go into his room, and he would stand up at attention, and he'd say, Oh, my general, it's so glad to, I'm so glad to see you. And I'd say, Well, it's great seeing you, and then we would sit down, and he'd tell me some stories and some little jokes, told me the same jokes uh, every time I met with him. <clears throat> but then he would uh, talk a little bit about government and the weather and all those kinds of things, and then he would drift off to sleep, and that was my cue to leave when he would doze off. Well, this one day we went through our little routine, and, and as he sat there, he kind of nodded off, and he went to sleep, and I stood up to leave, and he said, he put his hand up, and he said, don't go. I want to tell you something. Sit down. So I sat down. He said, I'm going to tell you something that I think you need to know. You may know it, but I want to emphasize it. He said, do you know what God has promised you? And I said, well, I think so. And he said, well, God's promised you eternal life. I said, I know that. And he said, well, don't ever forget that. And he said, have you made promises during your life thus far? And I said, oh, I've made lots of promises. He said, yeah, I said, I've made a lot of promises. But I have made three promises that have sustained me all my years. Three promises that are my foundation and are so important. I want to tell you about these promises because you, have made, have made, you may have made these promises also. He said, I made all my promises before I was... 21 years old. And I made them to God, and they were all witnessed by man as I made them to God. And he said, the first promise I made was when I was about 12 years old, and that's when they, you joined the church in my part of the country. And he said, I stood up at the altar of that little church and held hands with two or three of my little buddies. And we swore to God that we would obey His laws. And that congregation stood behind us, and they said that they would help us. He said, the second promise I made, I had just 
turned 18, and I joined the Army. And I stood before the captain, and I raised my right hand, and I swore that I would protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all of its enemies, foreign and domestic. So help me God. And the third promise I made, I was about 20, and I met the most beautiful woman, girl, you can imagine. And I fell in love with her, and thank the Lord she fell in love with me. And we got married, and we went back to that same little church where I joined several years before. And we stood at the altar, and we held hands, and we promised to honor and obey each other until death parted us. And that congregation stood behind us and told us that they would help us do that. That first promise, I tried my best, and sometimes I failed, and sometimes I did pretty good. But the part that's important to me, that when I didn't do well, God forgave me, and he was always there in my corner. The second promise, I think I kept that. I would have gladly given my life for my country. And the third promise, I think I kept that too. My wife is no longer with me. She's in heaven. And I'll be joining her shortly. We stayed together until death parted us. Son, what I'm talking about is God, family, and country. That's what we're all about. That's what sustains us. And he dozed off, and I left. Promises have a real power in life, but the most powerful promises are not the ones actually that we make. The most powerful promises are the ones that are made to us that carry us through. Joshua went on a very long journey that eventually went from Egypt to a new land. And what carried him was not the promises he made, but the promised land that was made to him. I was reading this past week about Nathan Sharansky. And Nathan was a real pain in the side to the old Soviet Union. So like they did with so many other people, they came one night quietly, arrested him and threw him in a prison. And there he stayed. But he had friends on the outside. He had friends in the international community, and so actually after a while he became a bigger pain to them being in prison than being out. And so one day they finally decided to set him free. They decided to take him to East Berlin, and there the KGB agents would escort him to a bridge, and he would cross over that bridge into West Berlin where his friends and allies waited. So the time came, February of 1986. And he was escorted by the agents to the bridge. And there on the other side was a large group of friends and supporters with banners and with great excitement. And then he came across the bridge. But he did the strangest thing. First he zigzagged. And, and then he danced. And then he twirled around and dallied some and looked over the edge of the bridge and, and dallied some more and then danced. 
and twirled and then finally, ever so slowly, made his way to the other side and the crowd erupted. But when the noise died down, somebody asked him, what were you doing on the bridge? And he said, well, before they released me, the KJB told me to go directly in a straight line across the bridge as quickly as possible. And he said, you know me, I never make an agreement with the KGB. Joshua did not make an agreement with the world that told him to do things a certain way. We see Joshua who dances through life with character and with courage and commitment. And what enables him to dance is the promise on the other side that calls him forward even in the midst of the most difficult and dire circumstances. He is still able to dance his way through it. I believe we can do the same in life, and I want to explain to you why this morning. I believe, first of all, that we, like Joshua, have been promised a land. Joshua's promised land was in Israel. It was a wonderful piece of ground. It was dirt. It was dirt that was good enough. They were told to be able to both farm and ranch on it, which is the translation of milk and honey. But it was a good land. But for us, it's not just an earthly piece of dirt or land. But God calls us forward into a promised land that we call eternity. And we know that eternity exists just from uh, what happens even in our own life. It points beyond ourselves toward eternity. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, I found it to be a law that if God places a desire in my heart, somewhere that desire is going to be fulfilled. So if God gives me a desire for food to eat, that there will be something to, to satisfy that hunger. If I thirst, I know that God has created liquid that will quench my thirst. If I hunger for relationship. I know that God has created other people for me. And he said, so when it comes in my life a time when I hunger and ache for something more, something beyond all of this, I know that it is a law that God has a place where the hungers that are beyond this life are fulfilled. The very fact of our own aching, assuming that there must be more than this, argues for a promise that that pulls us, a promise that's beyond us. Sometimes even the tragedies and difficulties that we endure in life argue for something more than this. Some years ago, a Boston College professor, Peter Kraft, was preaching in our sanctuary. And he made the observation that in his mind, it takes takes heaven for earth to make sense. Some of the tragedies that we endure and the suffering that we endure on earth, somewhere it has to be made even. Somewhere things have to come out. Somewhere, somehow, we must come to an understanding about what is going on in our life. And he said that somewhere, that somehow, that someplace, is heaven itself. There is a promised land for all of us. Promised not only in the scripture, but really hinted at in the experience of our own lives. But we have to remember, like Joshua, the promised land is not here. For Joshua, the promised land was not in Egypt, and the promised land was not in the wilderness. And all that God has promised for us, we are not going to come into right now, right here in this place. I learned a few years ago when somebody asked me about my life to answer like this. Well, my life's about as good as it gets on earth. Because there is more. There, there's more to this life. Not everything that God wants to give us will we receive us here. Not even the best that God has for us will we receive here. There is more that our life is pointing toward. I thought about that when uh, I thought about Easter. And I've got three sons, and they're growing up. But when they were younger, they had an Easter basket. This is one of them. 
the oldest Easter basket. And on those Easter mornings, he would look for things that were already in this Easter basket and things hidden in the backyard and around the house that would go in this basket. And nearly everything he wanted could fit in here. Chocolate bunny, cream-filled egg, maybe a crunchy egg, maybe a a hard-boiled egg, maybe a plastic egg filled with a sticker or some other surprise or toy. But it pretty much all fit in this basket. But he's growing. And I find now that what I want him to have, indeed what I want to give him, will no longer fit in this basket. I want him to have an education, but it just can't get there. When he got old enough, I wanted to give him a decent used car that he could drive, but it just wouldn't fit there. Now that he's in law school, I want him to have a job so he can pay off his loans. (laughs) But it doesn't fit there. And someday I hope for him a relationship. A life that he can share with someone else. And however special she is, she won't fit in here either. The things that used to fill this basket and that he thought made him happy, were not the best things that I wanted to give him or the best things even that he needed. And yet I think God must look at our life like that. We, we fill it with things that look pretty big, a house or a car or, or a title, and we stuff it in there and we think, this is what I need. But God knows what God wants to give us and what we really need, and it will not fit into our earthly baskets. Our earthly baskets just cannot hold all the promises of God. And so there must be a place and there must be a time where God can give us all that God wants us to have. And that time and that place is our promised land. It is eternity. And I find that when I don't trust that, I become somewhat like Robinson Crusoe. And I just think that I'm uh, just shipwrecked on this life. And I'll try to hoard and collect and patch together whatever kind of existence I can. But when I do that, I'm never dancing. I'm never zigzagging. I'm never dallying. I'm just straight in line trying to make the best of whatever. And what God wants for me is so much more than that. There's a promised land, but it's not here. Now, there are enemies, just like Joshua found out, that will try to sidetrack you on the way to the promised land. Uh, Joshua had to face Jebusites, Anakites, Amalekites. He had to face people that wanted to take away his joy, wanted to take away... Take him away from the journey. And we'll find enemies too. Enemies like fear that paralyzes us and keeps us from moving in any direction. Or guilt, which always has the ability to pull us to a, back to a place that we've already been and really don't have any need to go visit again. Or worry, which takes us into the future but really takes us too soon to get there and often takes us to the wrong place, a place we were never intended to go anyway. These enemies. They try to pull us off this journey. And then Joshua ran into the biggest obstacle of all. It wasn't a human enemy. It was a natural barrier, the Jordan River. He ran into the Jordan River at flood stage. And what separated Joshua from the promised land was this, what seemed at the time, an impenetrable natural barrier. And so we in our life eventually come up against a natural barrier that seems to be impenetrable. And seems to cast its shadow over everything that we do or think of doing. And that natural barrier is death itself. But watch what God did for Joshua. When they got to this impenetrable barrier, God parted it. And this is amazing. God actually made this barrier the passageway into the promised land. God actually made what they thought they could never 
get through the way into the promised land as he parted it. And when we think about Good Friday and Easter, God does exactly the same thing, takes this largest, most impenetrable of barriers, this most intimidating of obstacles, and says, I will make this the passageway into what I have promised you. You will move through this into the promised land. And so it is that we face enemies and we face an obstacle, but Christ takes us through it, and the obstacle is in fact the very way into the promised land itself. And then when we get there, we, like Joshua, find that it is better even than we had hoped for. They had sent spies. Joshua was one of the spies. And the spies came back with a report and said, this land is really something. It's exactly as God described it. But for different reasons, people let their fear and their guilt and their worry hold them back from crossing over. It's too bad. Most of them missed out because it was better than even it had been described to them. It was more than they could imagine. Same situation, I think, hits us. I heard a story of two twins that were in their mother's womb, and they were describing what life on the outside must be like. And one of the twins said, oh, it must be so much brighter, and it must be so much roomier and airier, and there must be so many opportunities to do things we can't do now. And the other twin told him to shut up and said, no, it's just going to be the same out there the way it is in here. And that twin was wrong. And anyone who suggests to you that life doesn't get any better than this, and that the next life holds no more opportunity than this life, and you better grab in this life for as much and as fast as you can, they are wrong and they are blind. It's because they've never been there. But there is one who has been there. And he came back and he made this promise that I'm going to my father's house. And one day, I will come back when the room is prepared for you. I will come and get you and take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And it communicated to Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 that this place would be better and more than we could even imagine. William Dyke became blind when he was 10 years old. In his early 20s, he was in graduate school in England and he fell in love with a woman And he decided to go ask her father, who was an admiral in the British Navy, for her hand. And the father agreed to give her hand in marriage, but only on one condition, that Dyke would undergo a very risky experimental surgery that might restore his eyesight. Dyke agreed, but on his own condition. The condition was that the gauze would not be removed from his eyes until he was at the altar on his wedding day. Because if, in fact, he got his eyesight, he wanted his bride to be the very first person that he saw. So the day of the wedding came, and the father assisted, uh, the father of the groom assisted the groom down the aisle, and there they waited. And the father of the bride walked the bride down the aisle, and there they stood. And in silence as they stood there, the father of the groom from the backside began to unwound the gauze covering William Dyke's eyes. Finally, the last piece of gauze had been unwound, and the congregation and the fathers waited. But Dyke stood there speechless. And then finally he spoke and he said to his bride, You are more beautiful than I ever imagined. One day we will go from this side of the bridge to the other. And we will meet our Lord there and we will say of him and of the place where he takes us, This is more beautiful than we ever imagined.